Buongiorno, everyone, and hello again from icy Shanghai. For this week's episode, I recently bore the elements to track down the offices of Chase Future and one of Shanghai's most switched-on and inspiring young entrepreneurs, Mr. Greg Nance. Chase Future is an online mentorship-based university admissions preparatory service, and Greg is its founder and fearless leader. If you want to dramatically increase your chances of getting into the university and/or program of your choice, be sure to check out Chase Future. As for Greg, he's not really that impressive at all. Of course, I'm kidding. Greg is a rare bird in the best possible way. Sharp as a tack, brimming with confidence, passion, and enthusiasm, Greg is one of those people who, after speaking with him, you feel an energy, a charge, and an optimism to just go out and carpe the damn DM. As intelligent as Greg is, he also has another common attribute with many of the great entrepreneurs: grit. Call it determination, stubbornness, unwavering belief. Or straight-up masochism, Greg is a fighter who anticipates hardship and conditions himself for it in advance. We delve into this concept of building resilience in our chat. We also discuss his approach to decision making on daily tasks, but also on how, in a world full of opportunity, how to choose where to place your focus, or more simply, how and where and when to fully commit. Chase Future has gone through a round of venture funding, and Greg had some exceptional. Must-hear advice on pitching,、uh, handling rejection, and in reference to the whole fundraising process, starting before you start. Oh yeah, Greg also runs ultra marathons, sometimes in the desert. Why? Well, apart from being a huge believer in the primary importance of physical health and fitness, side note, the Chase Future team does whole office workouts together. Greg believes pushing oneself physically is integral in building that mental toughness that pays so many dividends as an entrepreneur. Of course, we go into lots of practical tips, the morning routine Greg follows to set up his day, the importance in keeping touch with keeping in touch with friends and family, some advice that I desperately needed to hear, and much more. Finally, in the high-stress, emotional roller coaster life that is entrepreneurship, Greg offers a simple piece of advice, which is, do something every day that has no other purpose but to make you smile. I'll shut up now. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the Pearl of the Orient. Shanghai is the city of the future. All systems go full steam ahead. It never stops. Technology, innovation, ambition—it's everywhere. Join us as we explore this new world and talk to the people making it happen. The Tech in Shanghai podcast. The future is now. Okay, we're live. Greg,、Excellent. thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So,、um, before or in preparation for the podcast today, obviously, I, I did a bit of research on you, creeped you out a bit on your on your Twitter page and your your blog and, and things like that.、Um, and it reminded me of why I do this show. And I hadn't I haven't done a, an interview since before Christmas. And as I was saying before, I kind of lost my edge, not my interest, but you know, I was kind of like,、uh-huh. where, where should I go with this? But then I was looking at your kind of story, and I don't want to be overly、uh, flattering, at least not at the outset. But you know, I looked at some of the things you do in terms of the extracurricular, non-work-based stuff, and and the, the, your educational background and your ex- work experience background is really impressive. But、uh, you know, you you clearly have this, let's say, unusual、uh, or atypical、uh, desire to challenge yourself physically and in other areas, not just your career.、Mm. Um, so those are some of the things I want to get into today. But before we do that, 
The reason why we're connecting today is because we are here in the offices of Chase Future. Uh, and why don't you introduce myself and the audience to Chase Future and what you guys kind of do? Absolutely. Um, yeah, Chase Future, we're changing how people uh, apply to university and pursue opportunities abroad. And so we have a two-sided platform, students in China and elsewhere that have a big ambition in their life but have uh, challenges. They have information asymmetry, um, and they're trying to navigate the complexities of either career recruiting or admissions. And so our mentors, based all over the world, work directly with these students, mentoring them through a curriculum, mm -hmm. helping them build their background, helping them learn about the admissions or recruiting process, and then actually uh, helping them to sculpt their application, helping them to edit their personal statement, build out their CV, prepare for their interview, all in an academically honest fashion that really makes these people uh, better able to succeed at university or in their new profession. Mm -hmm. And we, we touched on this briefly before we started recording, but how... Actually, first, why, why, why Chase Future? Why this mm. type of work? What drew you to this type of work? Yeah, I believe in the, the fundamental transformative power of mentorship. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many people that are, that are hungry, they're ambitious, but they're, they don't quite know how to, to get ahead, how to kind of uh, lift themselves up. And uh, a compassionate mentor can make all the difference. In my own life, I've had many, uh, both through athletics, through my profession, through my education. Mm -hmm. uh, these people have helped me get to where I am. I wanted to pay that forward. And we saw a huge, uh, not only a business opportunity, but an impact opportunity. And mm -hmm. we wanted to go for it. And why China? China is, uh, has been the source of my curiosity for a long time. I think it's a, a very, very fascinating culture. It's such a rapidly growing economy. Uh, the people here are, are good, they're decent, they're ambitious, and mm -hmm. I wanted to, to live that and experience it firsthand, mm -hmm. and I've met some amazing friends and colleagues in the course. And was it, was it at all because or was it driven by the fact that there are so many university applicants in China looking to go to top universities abroad? I mean, is that, did that lead your thinking as well, or is the service that you guys provide you know, global in its scope and target for, for customers? Yeah, we are global in scope in many facets, although we're, we're headquartered here for a reason. Uh, as you mentioned, this is a massive consumer market that continues to grow year on year on year on year. Um, it, it really all started when I was in business school, challenged to find um, a, uh, an opportunity for a, for a business based off a, a global challenge in a market that I was passionate about. So I centered on uh, education and how technology can be integrated to create better outcomes for student achievement. India and China were where my, uh, my research went. Uh, and at that very time, I was literally Googling this, and there had just broken a scandal at the University of Delaware, which had uh, uh, about 100 uh, Chinese students flunk out uh, because they couldn't, uh, they didn't know English. And it was revealed that they had an agent in China that actually had falsified all their TOEFL scores to help them get into the University of Delaware. Right. And, you know, I'm starting to scratch my, my chin here saying, wow, that's crazy. And I, I dig in more. I learned that there's this pretty unethical, super low, non-tech, uh, and very, very expensive. And I feel I, I realize, hey, look, there's got to be an ethical, an efficient, and affordable alternative. Mm -hmm. And, hey, maybe this can be my pitch to my professors. I think I can build that with some great people. We can make a, a great impact. Mm -hmm. And since having that inspiration or noticing or spotting that opportunity, what has been what has the journey been like? Yeah, it's been a, a total roller coaster. So uh, you have this big idea, you start working on your dorm room. There's so much excitement, and you know uh, I, I just seen the social network, and you're thinking about wow, like our idea could be just as big as this. This is incredible, uh -huh. uh, and then you're faced with uh, with realities, and 
we figure, you know, uh, silly things like, hey, how do we actually uh, reach out to these target customers that we know are out there in an authentic way that doesn't feel commercial or slimy, but shows, hey, this is what we're really trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to find product market fit uh, thereafter, trying to get incorporated, trying to find your, your founding team, uh, trying to, to, to scale once you're actually onto something. Mm-hmm. Um, each of these big challenges, uh, you feel like you're climbing a mountain, and sometimes uh, after a great week, you've taken a couple steps up, and then you get that email Saturday night, and you slide back down, and now you've got to go do it again next week. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's the ability to manage your emotions and ride that roller coaster as you climb the mountain that yeah. I think differentiates those that, uh, that give up when they face uh, setbacks and challenges versus those that are going to just be stubborn like myself and keep climbing hell or high water. (laughs) And when that happens, and I'm sure this is the case for any startup and most businesses, minus the ones that just get super lucky and hit early on, but, you know, it's, you begin on this journey out of spotting an opportunity and having it align with the passion or purpose for you, you know, Mm. passionate about education, passionate about what, what you just discussed throughout that journey of ups and downs and setbacks and achievements and things like that how do you especially during the setbacks because it's all it's all happy days during the time when things are good of course but during the setbacks the doubt that seeps in the did i make the right call Mm. was this the right opportunity to capitalize on what the hell am i doing in china Mm. do those pop up and if so what is your particular approach in in dealing with them and pushing through it yeah great question i've had uh a number of doubts. When I first told friends and uh, and former colleagues that I'm moving to China to start this, I was met with uh, near uniform, uh, you know, question marks or downright scorn. People right. saying, "Hey, I think you're making a terrible career move. What are you doing?" Yeah. And uh, on one level, that was uh, expected, and on another, it was uh, it was motivating. Hey, look, this this must be a good opportunity if others don't see the the logic in it because I'm clearly excited about it. And I've done my homework. I've spent a lot of uh, time trying to figure this out. Let's Which go for it. Which is an entrepreneur's mindset, right? Because you could equally make the, you could say the same thing and make the case for the opposite. So totally. it, it's a matter of perspective. Hundred percent. Go on. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, my mom had tears in her eyes when I told her she was not have, trying to have me move across the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Uh, whereas my my dad was super excited for me and thought it was going to be a great adventure, mm-hmm. if uh, if nothing else. And um, I think that that was the first. Uh, uh, you know, material, kind of emotional, emotionally resonant setback, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, since then, I think I've gotten uh, far, far more setbacks, and I've gotten better at dealing with it. Um, initially, it was I need to drop my work after that, you know, bad email that comes through and go for a run and go clear my head for the next hour. Um, I think now I'm getting to a point where it's, you know, you take a couple deep breaths, take a slug of water, uh, maybe uh, take a walk around the 10th floor of this building here where we're, we're headquartered, and then get back to work. And right. so... Uh, yes, those setbacks I think are happening to everyone, but you got to remember: here's our north star, here's uh, the vision that we're marching toward, and there will always be uh, challenges on that path. But mm-hmm. it's the ability to to stay on and keep relentlessly pushing forward yeah. that will get you there eventually. And so, Chase Future has been uh, a reality and a going concern for how how long now? How many years? It's been uh, forty months and seven days. Okay. So since September fifth, twenty twelve. And what, if anything, has changed about your assessment of the opportunity mm. and your uh, your degree of perceived competency in in capitalizing on that opportunity mm. has changed since you know this Delaware incident you had the light bulb moment and where we are today totally uh, 
I'm reminded of a, uh, a letter Jeff Bezos wrote to Amazon shareholders in 1997, uh, the year uh, their company went public. He, uh, he shared that not only will he take a long-term perspective when evaluating uh, various strategic decisions for the company, but that he, uh, he believed in a few long-term trends that would align and coalesce to make Amazon a very uh, uh, a, a massive company and one that was creating a lot of impact uh, at the center uh, at the confluence of a lot of these factors. Mm-hmm. Um, I read that uh, here four, five, six years ago and was thinking, wow, like, there surely will be these mega trends that are pulsing through the world. Part of the key being an entrepreneur is identifying where they're going and then positioning yourself uh, in the right place mm-hmm. at the confluence of those factors. And uh, one thing that surprised me uh, is how quickly we're moving uh, in, the, in a few directions. One of them is how uh, when we first got started back in uh, uh, September 2012, most uh, VCs I spoke to, most prospective angel investors I spoke to, thought that the idea that people would pay top dollar for online consultation, for online services, they thought it was just completely crazy. And they thought it was impossible to recruit mentors that would be willing to do that, and it would be even harder to find clients that would be uh, that would actually pay you to then get service over Skype. Yeah. At the time, we didn't have a web platform. What we're seeing is that over these uh, three three years, four months, the market maturing significantly. People are now looking for the best resources, the best advice, mm-hmm. no matter where they can find it. And it just so happens that when you have an online model, you're able to bring global resources to China in a way that the brick-and-mortar guy uh, never can. And so that was a uh, what at the time felt like a really long-term bet, and it's mm-hmm. one that uh, feels like it's happening in um, – in fast in fast forward motion and so we're really continuing to invest in building out the experience therein so that we're on the right side of that trend really able to lead that market in that way and i guess the second part of that question or first part or I, what, however i mentioned it was and it, you know this is something that applies to so many entrepreneurs entrepreneurs love the spot opportunity right you know they, they that's their fun their fun is when they get off work they go mm-hmm. home they walk around the street they go for their run and they see opportunity everywhere. And I think part of the battle for entrepreneurs is to focus their energy and uh, and their attention mm. on what they're actually trying to accomplish and not all the different things that they could do with that great untapped potential inside of them. Right? Absolutely. But what, um, you know, what I want to get your perspective on is when you, obviously you had this, this light bulb moment, you spotted this opportunity, and here we are 42 months or however many months later, what is your assessment of mm. how you viewed the opportunity 42 months ago mm. and, and the reality of, of the opportunity today? Yeah, totally. I, I, uh, from day one, I figured, hey, this is going to be a long game. And I think 40 months, seven days later, I'm still thinking we're in the first inning of a long game. Mm. And the key now is to keep ourselves focused and energetic and, and plowing forward. And a few things have shifted. Uh, the social media environment three and a half years ago was was very different. Rin Rin, the kind of Chinese Facebook, mm-hmm. was all the rage. Um, now, of course, it's uh, almost dead. You know, I, I suspect it'll get acquired by someone for pennies on the dollar right. in the next months or year. Um, three and a half years ago, very few people would have predicted that that would occur in yeah. the, uh, the coming four years. Uh, that's dramatically affected our customer acquisition. Previously, we would film videos, write instructional articles that were kind of pitch perfect for Rin Rin, which was a, a network dominated by college students Weixin, by contrast, is almost exclusively mobile. 
uh, completely built for mobile and it's consumed on mobile. And so the result is people aren't trying to watch 10 minute instructional videos anymore. Mm -hmm. They're not trying to read long form essays, even of a very uh, uh, enriching, fascinating nature. Um, we're seeing those numbers across. And so there have been a, a number of uh, market-facing uh, tacking of the sales that, that one must make in order to stay relevant and stay uh, at the head of the market. And so yeah, the, the opportunity looks different now. There are tons and tons of new entrants, as, uh, as we predicted, given the, the size and the scale of this, of this opportunity. We stand uh, by a few timeless, timeless principles of business. You've got to have great quality. You've got to really serve your, uh, your customers' needs and then help your customers become your biggest advocates, your biggest evangelists. Uh, you know you're winning when you're seeing positive uh, accolades and testimonials about yourself unsolicited mm -hmm. on Weixin, and you hear the word-of-mouth cycle really pulsing. Yeah. Those are the great things that uh, it surprised me just how powerful that is. I think Chinese consumers are talking even more than I uh, would have figured, much more so than perhaps American counterparts or those in Europe. Right. So is that, a, is that an, an answer saying that the opportunity is – bigger than you had anticipated 42 months ago or yeah it i think uh, uh yeah four years ago there were a lot of people that said hey the western world uh, is just coming out of this big recession it might plunge back in we're not so sure if you know indian and chinese interest in western institutions will persist or if that's sort of a, a fad yeah. and okay. uh, we're seeing those numbers continue to accelerate uh, you know india's growing like gangbusters china's growing uh, 10 to 20 percent a year depending mm -hmm. on who you, uh, which statistics you're consulting so it uh yeah it, it is big it's bigger than i would have figured it would be in this time period mm -hmm. and uh it, it's so fragmented that we're still really excited because the right product can take a big portion of this currently fragmented market right and are, is chase future set up how should i word this are you in, in terms of your growth right now is mm -hmm. your growth limited by you know, your sales team and your pipeline and the team you have here, or is it more limited by uh, capacity? You guys want to make sure that the, the service you offer maintains a certain level of quality and therefore you have to shrink down, you know, how many people you, you take on as customers. Yeah. Where, where are you guys at with that? Yeah, great question. So one of the, uh, the realities we've had to shift in the market and just trying to change the status quo of a large market is quite challenging. Uh, previously, students expected that their study abroad provider would uh, actually write their essays for them, would write a CV for them, would write recommendation letters for them, and even in some cases, like the Delaware students, falsify transcripts or test scores. Right. Uh, and so when you enter a market and you have a completely different ethical compass and you say, no, actually, you're going to be doing a lot more work. You're going to be spending uh, far more time and effort and really invest yourself in this process. Um, a lot of people just say, whoa, like, that's crazy. Why would I do that? Others say that sounds like a, an amazing challenge and an amazing growth opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so part of our challenge has been let's find those students that have the kind of DIY, yes, I want to like build and enrich myself yeah. and really grow and develop through this process. Finding those people, uh, it's challenging. And so we've really had to tell a great story through our marketing uh, and through our outreach efforts. Um, that's been something that uh, that surprises. So in, in one sense, it's selecting folks that can do that work through our mentorship and those that are willing and able uh, to invest that time to do so. Uh, the, the very structure of the Chinese education system, it's very, very heavy on gao-kao preparation for your standardized exam, and students are completely loaded up with um, academic activities. Uh, it's a very, very rigorous education system here, and so it's, it's a hard sell when you're saying, look, you're going to be doing a lot more work, spending a lot more time on this. 
but very fortunately in our four years, we've uh, produced some amazing results for students that did put that time in. And so we're starting to see um, a real shift uh, as we go forward. Now we can just, we, we point to our track record as opposed to uh, purely aspirational language, right. which is how we began. So. Good, good. And throughout this time, I think I read somewhere, I don't know if it was on your blog or on your, your webpage, your uh, Chase Future page, did you raise money recently or somewhere in the last 12 months or something like that? We have. Um, so we raised a, a $450,000 round from a variety of uh, uh, pretty amazing angel investors, ranging from the COO of Cloudflare um, to leaders in the, the Silicon Valley uh, ed tech industry, mm-hmm. uh, including three venture capitalists, uh, SOS Ventures, yeah. uh, led by William Baubin, uh, Banyan Capital, which is an IDG uh, spinoff uh, based out of Beijing, and then Harbor Pacific, which is a group with uh, uh, Silicon Valley and a Hong Kong office. Yeah, I know this is an issue that a lot of entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs are curious about. Mm. Um, for the would-be curious and for entrepreneurs, some are even uh, under a lot of pressure to understand this process because they need to raise capital. So can you share with us a little bit about what your experience was like, You know, how you went about it, how mm. long it took how you put all the pieces together and how it actually came to fruition? Yeah, uh, my uh, my first takeaway and what I heard from mentors as I was getting going is really focus on building a, a foundation for your project. Uh, worry first about that. And so for us, that was uh, finding our first customers, building out the rudiments of our product, thinking through the basics of our operation and how we would build some quality control into a two-sided platform. Um, once we had checked kind of those boxes and we'd validated each of those at a basic level, we then were pretty interesting to angel investors because when you have those rudiments, they can envision, hey, this, this could grow into something significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was step one. And um, I was tempted initially to just dive straight in, go get some money in the bank, start hiring straight away. But I think that would have been a mistake, and I'm glad I got the advice I did. Um, uh, my, the way I proceeded through is I started pinning a monthly newsletter, just sharing, hey, here's what we accomplished in – uh, January 2016, here's what we're planning for February. And then at the end of the February, here's what we did, here's what we're planning. And we strung together uh, six or seven successful months in a row of just, hey, we did what we said we were going to do, maybe even a little bit more, and we're setting progressively bigger and bigger goals as and we went forward. you sent that out to who? Uh, initially, it was uh, my parents, uh, a few friends from my uh, my first project, yeah. and then a, a couple folks that had written like $100 checks to, uh, to MoneyThink, my first project. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, though, I said, hey, look, if you have others that you think might be interested in learning more about our work, feel free to share this, uh, this newsletter with them. I'd love to get in touch. And we built that list from uh, you know, the, the 12 people, many of whom I had a familial connection with initially, right. to, a, uh, to a much larger list. Uh, uh, you know, now some 350 uh, primarily uh, prospective investors and friends of our company, mm-hmm. potential partners, uh, kind of now are getting – uh, these updates and the result of that has been when it's time for us to kind of open the spigot for hey we're looking for financing it's uh, it's much more straightforward because an investor has been f- watching you uh, over the, the last six or nine or 12 or 15 months mm-hmm. they see that you're a group that likes to execute you're a group that not only talks uh, a big game but really follows through on it and I think that separates uh, a lot of folks in the startup community and yeah. so uh, advice for uh, founders trying to raise cash is uh, don't wait until you need these funds. Actually, start building this campaign well beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, six, nine, 12 months out, start uh, cultivating a, a list of folks that might be a target with uh, with your project. Start showing up to industry events. Add these people 
onto your uh, your communications and then share, hey, here's what we're going to do and then uh, go execute on it. And I think that shows that uh, investors can trust you with their, uh, their hard-earned capital to, to put it to work. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, and then once you were going to raise capital, how did you unwind those prospects mm. into actual investors in your company and how long did all that take? Yeah, so uh, um, I started out with kind of a campaign focus. Uh, I was super, super busy with uh, just, you know, I was running operations at the time and was kind of like a big time product guy at the company. And so I realized, hey, this is going to be a, a big time commitment. And so I need to uh, really fence it off in the right way. And so I uh, created, you know, in my weekly planning uh, and my kind of quarterly brainstorms said, look, this is going to be a, a major impact area. And because it's going to take away from product and ops focus, I need to do this in the most time efficient way that I can. I sent out a note to uh, uh, about 10 people on that list that were, uh, that I knew were angel investors said, Hey, here's what I'm thinking. Uh, would love your advice. And so I asked them not to write me a check, but I want your advice on how I might get others to write me a check. And a couple of those folks um, ended up coming through. And one in particular, William Babine, uh, was a, a very well-known angel investor in Shanghai and a VC. And so once we kind of earned him on our side, uh, the interest to really well-connected and a lot of the right fits just started flowing naturally. And so um, my my big advice is you got to find that kind of that one person that could be the game changer for you, mm-hmm. and invest time to build that. Um, right. You know, with William, he was a mentor I looked up to. Uh, got several coffees, several phone calls, built you know some good rapport. There was a friendship forming there. He was a guy that I admired and looked up to. Um, and then once the time was right, he said, "Look, I I've, I have confidence in this. I think this is going to work. I want to put you in touch with my my pals at Angel Vest. SOS Ventures is always looking for cool projects." You know, shoot me over the deck, mm-hmm. um, shoot me over your financials, shoot me over your uh, uh, your annual plan, what you're going to accomplish. And yeah. with the, that basic diligence material that I had actually done before we f- uh, formally got started with financing, it, this was a matter of uh, you know uh, 20 or 30 pitches to a variety of people to find really strong mutual fits. And because I'd done a lot of the diligence um, process beforehand, mm-hmm. I wasn't. Uh, it was comparatively uh, low stress actually, just getting this. To the finish line, right? And how do you, as a as a young startup, you know, it's often said that valuation is more of an art than a science, right? Where you know it's up to you as the founder. What do you think the potential of the company is, mm-hmm. and what are your plans? Totally. So how do you, I guess, right before approaching investors, when someone like William says, "Throw, you know, send over your deck mm-hmm. and, and your financials," how do you set that valuation? Yeah, it's it's way more art than science yeah. uh, because I've I've talked to friends at uh, radically different stages of this. And um, at every level, there's a, a lot of voodoo that goes into it. For us, uh, we acknowledged that we wanted to create a flexible architecture up front so that we could attract the right partners as opposed to just going out for like, that right cool kids valuation. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we went with what's called a uh, convertible capped note, mm-hmm. which basically means uh, you acknowledge up front you don't know what the valuation is. Neither the investor uh, nor the entrepreneur, and uh, but you do have a cap on what the potential valuation will be, such that your investors are rewarded for coming on early, uh, and it's f- uh, formally actually a debt instrument, which will then convert to equity mm-hmm. after a qualified financing. Uh, jargon aside, what that basically means is you're getting a loan from someone, which will become stock in the company mm-hmm. once you've raised a Series A, mm-hmm. um, and that. Uh, uh, that seemed to be the the best situation for us. After talking to a, uh, uh, reading a bunch of blogs, after talking to a lawyer, and talking to a few of these advisors I mentioned, yeah. it felt like the right thing to do. And does that eliminate the need 
for back and forth between you and investors on, oh, that valuation is too high or it's too low or I don't want to pay that much or significantly that just kind of it, it melts away. away. Yeah, because number one, this it's very very simple. So our term sheet was like two pages. Right. I've heard horror stories of you know on page fifty eight of the term sheet, da 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 da. It's like oh no, I I want nothing to do with that because every page of that term sheet is going to cost you hundreds if not thousands of dollars in legal fees mm-hmm. as you're negotiating back and forth with not only a, an angel investor or a VC, but also their lawyer. Yeah. And so uh, short is sweet in this game, and particularly when you've got a business to build, uh, eliminate some of the, uh, the nonsense there mm-hmm. uh, by you know, uh, keeping it simple. And yeah. that was some of the best advice I've received. And what was some of the feedback? You said you did about 20, 30 pitches or something yep. like that throughout this process. I'm presuming a great number of them did not materialize into investments. Totally. yes. What was some of the feedback, criticism, whatever that you got during that process, during those pitches as yep. to why, you know, a VC, an angel, whomever might not invest in, in the company? Yeah, it was kind of three broad buckets uh, when we first went out. Number one, it was, I don't think this model will work. Um, and that was a combination of scalability considerations. It was a combination of quality control, a, hey, there's like a graveyard of companies that looked a lot like this. They just couldn't figure it out. Um, a couple of folks didn't think we could monetize. You know, mm-hmm. it won't work. Um, a second group um, was uh, was quite bearish on our ability to compete, um, uh, in the sense that hey, we have a really high ethical bar, we have a, a really fragmented market out there, um, and we were at that point completely bootstrapping uh, our customer acquisition, and you know our numbers didn't look that hot because we were so young, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't think you can compete with sort of a second bucket. A third being, um, I'm not sure you're the right guy to lead this project. You're young. You're an American. You don't speak Mandarin. You don't have real experience in a two-sided platform. You know, kind of like, what the hell are you doing? Why are yeah. you Why are you here? Um, uh, you know, a couple people said I, they weren't sure if I was serious kind of deal. And so yeah. that, that was sort of a third bucket. Um, each one of those, though, I, I really tried to uh, do a couple things psychologically. Number one, I treated it as a big learning uh, experience that hey, I will certainly face lots of rejection, and a lot of this, if I don't take it personally, if I try to you know, separate the ego from this, will be quite useful intel actually, and some of it will be very useful. Hey, quality control is a big challenge. I want to learn from this guy what he's seen previously because every one of these VCs had a lot more business experience than I did. Let me learn as much as I can. Uh, and a second thread was look, uh, try to turn a lot of these sort of uh, negatives, jujitsu this into positives. And so when you do get you know harsh feedback about you're not the right guy, you don't have the right leadership skills, or you don't understand this, well, I want to go out and better understand it. So what books should I be reading? What, uh, what skills do I really need to develop? Mm-hmm. And I created a little bit of a kind of a self-development plan around that. And yeah. you know, some, some days it was, you know, it was a Friday evening where I'm thinking, oh, this might be the big term sheet, and it's just a big rejection. And uh, to top it off, this guy has to leave in the middle of it for a phone call. I'm stuck with this bill at a nice place. Like, oh, man, how did this just happen? <laughs> how did this just happen? But uh, those are the Friday nights where you've got extra fuel. You're up late working on your game because at the end of the day, uh, so much of it of the battle is fought or uh, fought, won, or lost between your ears. It's kind of what's going on in your brain. Right. Uh, it's the uh, the inner game of entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. 100%. And, that, and that's what I want to <laughs> dig into and, and talk to you a bit more about. And the reason why I ask these questions is because obviously it's so common. And, and you know, I've spoken with entrepreneurs before that have had many more pitches than that in an attempt to fundraise and, and secure financing for their business. And it's so common that the story of it, even the one that we're saying right now, though I appreciate your, your answers and they are very unique, becomes cliche oh yeah we raised money we had to pitch you know 50 people it took us six months whatever 
but as you say, lost in that is the in between the ears content, and that's what 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 really what I'm really interested in, and I think that's maybe what would be entrepreneurs and even current entrepreneurs can learn from people like you and can cultivate more within them is managing that in between the ears hey. dialogue, right? Because cool. you know you do go into, of course, you're optimistic when you go into a pitch. You know, is this uh-huh. the one that I'm going to get the money from? Is this the term sheet? Is Will you know? Are we going to walk out? Handshake, boom! I'm back to work, and we're taking over the world again. <laughs> you know, so you go yeah. in with, and I'm sure after a while you check those a bit, and maybe it's a bit more of a pragmatic mindset when you go into mm. it. But that's kind of in the back of your head. Okay. That's going on, right? And then when you get rejection of whatever kind, you're not the right guy. It's not the right time. It's not the right market. You know, there's a bit of a deflation, mm. right? And as you were just saying, managing that is really important, but. Can you can you talk a little bit more about it? I guess is what I'm totally. asking about yeah, yeah. about the, the the rejection part. Yeah, so rejection uh, it stings, and it stings uh, the kind of folks that typically become entrepreneurs. Um, I think the typical profile is someone that's pretty self confident, someone that thinks they have a better way. Typically, someone that has found some uh, at least modest success in other aspects of their life, yeah. um, and someone that's driven to win. And so when you uh, walk into a pitch and you get rejected it's 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 kind of a binary it's like did i move to the next step toward getting cash for the business or did i strike out oh i struck out and right. it, yeah, that's a loss that's not a win um, uh, and it does it does certainly sting the way that i kind of uh, began preparing for that was aiming to build resilience you know i think you need some thick skin to succeed in in many endeavors in life uh, business entrepreneurship being a a glaring example where mm-hmm. if you take every setback uh, uh, personally it's really hard to jump back on that horse and to keep going. Um, and so I, I really intentionally trained around building resilience. Um, some silly things. I was uh, living on a, uh, in an apartment on uh, one of the higher floors, and I would uh, take the stairs at every opportunity. So just walking stairs, good time to think, good little chance to get some exercise in mm-hmm. during the day. Um, it was springtime as I was getting ready to go out for this investment. Uh, it was just warm enough where I could take some cold showers. So whether that's after fitness or in the morning, yeah. take a cold shower and uh, things become uh, a lot simpler to deal with when it's, there's not cold, very cold water hitting you in the face. Yeah. Um, uh, during runs, when I would get a, uh, uh, you know, a little Charlie horse in my leg, you know, run through that. That's a great time to sort of uh, uh, have your mind, a mind over matter kind of opportunity. And uh, those simple tactics of building additional resilience Made a made a big difference for me. Whenever I was late to a meeting, I would drop down and you know, knock out twenty five push ups. Uh, teach myself, hey, I got to be disciplined on these really small things because small things all things. If you uh, have a big opportunity and you really condition yourself to succeed on all these little small things, when you put those together, you're gonna have a great chance to succeed on that bigger stage. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that was both a, a personal choice and one that we've been really intentional about building in our broader culture at Chase Future. And so. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think everyone takes a cold shower every morning, but I do know that when we're late for meetings, uh, we're doing 25 push-ups together. Right. And those little things added up, I think, make quite a big difference. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I pressed you for more on that because that's an awesome answer. And it's a great segue into some of the, the other questions I want to ask you next. But um, I think you, you, you answered it you know, before I even asked that question, and, and I think it bears repeating in that you know, it's, we talked about self-doubt earlier and how it kind of has this – osmosis-like effect, and it can just seep into your thoughts and, mm. and your mentality. Um, and when someone stands in front of you, and someone who is ostensibly successful and has seen hundreds of startups before, and looks at you in the face and says, 
What you are you doing it. here, man? Yeah. yeah, you don't got the magic. You can't speak the language. You can't compete with the local guys. You know, go home or, or try something else or do whatever. To be able to reframe that as you did into a personal development mm. piece, you know, saying, of course, you have to have toughness of mentality to say, I'm not going to accept rejection as inadequacy in myself or sure. disbelief in myself, but. I will take that rejection and say, okay, how can I patch up some mm. of the holes that might actually be in, in what I bring to the table? Mm. Uh, and I think that's a great approach to look at it that way. So, you know, reserve your, your self-criticism. Just say it's a good a, a glaring uh, spotlight on where I can where yeah. I can improve. So just to finish off on that, how long from go time on, on mm. raising money to in the bank and we're back to work? How long was the process? I took – about four months. Um, we, we got lucky early with a, a couple of the right connections, which sped it along and then had the, uh, the luxury of choice at the end to figure out, hey, who, where is there the best kind of compatibility? Who can add the most value for us? Yeah. Um, that was really nice because um, I've heard lots of folks that, you know, once you lose momentum, it's really challenging. You kind of have lost whatever leverage and the deal no longer looks hot. And so um, my uh, my advice to folks is actually build in the shortest sprint cycles you can so that you're creating a uh, kind of a competitive dynamic where several angels or VCs have expressed interest and then get them all looking at it at the same time mm -hmm. so that uh, you can not only uh, get it done faster but get it done with better terms and with better partners. Yeah. And another uh, element of raising money which is unique to China is that – and, you know, uh, excluding recent activity in stock markets that may uh, disrupt this phenomenon. But, you you know, from my vantage point and speaking with a lot of entrepreneurs, it's been a fairly frothy investment market mm. in, in mainland China. Uh, there's a lot of Chinese investors. The, the angel investing industry in China has exploded in the Damn. last two, three, four years. Um, have you been approached by, you know, your stereotypical uber-wealthy Chinese person that just says, you know what, I, I just want this company feather in my cap, you know, or I'll fund uh -huh. you or whatever. Has that come across your table or? or yeah, not? a couple times um, where, yeah, you'll have kind of like the, uh, we joke about like the rich uncle, uh, someone that's yeah, looking to make a uh, kind of a big splash of an investment. Um, so, yeah, that has occurred. Uh, I've, I've been a fan since day one of folks with, uh, that are willing to kind of roll up their sleeves, that are willing to put in introductions, uh, people that are willing to advise on challenging strategic uh, issues in front of us mm -hmm. and the people that are uh, really excited about building companies and uh, typically from what I've seen and experienced and heard uh, that kind of archetypical angel isn't usually as helpful right. um, I mean, it depends on what you're doing maybe in some cases they're very helpful but sure. in in our case less so and that's part of the reason why we've uh, you know we, we vet prospective investors because uh, you're kind of getting married it's a it can be a 10-year, 20-, 30-year relationship, uh, the investors you take on. And so mm -hmm. we want to get to know them. We want to make sure there's values alignment and that they, uh, they appreciate our focus on kind of pedagogical and student outcomes in our business, which is different than what a lot of businesses are, uh, are really uh, kind of optimizing for and maximizing around. Yeah. You have to have investors that are patient that really see the long term mm -hmm. for that to work. Yeah. Okay. Um, now let's go back to the resilience bit because this is the stuff that uh, I love talking about. Um, yeah, and, and I think you were talking about cultivating resilience, right? And you mentioned this in the questionnaire I sent you before hey. we did this show. You were saying that that's one of the pieces of advice you would give to would-be entrepreneurs is to cultivate resilience. Um, and you mentioned that you do it through various ways. But this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about some of the 
the extracurricular activities that you engage in mm. that some might call torturous but that you <laughs> do because I'm sure you know it challenges yourself and maybe a, a, a part of it is building this resilience that you're talking about um, and I find that you know in, in a lot of the entrepreneurs I've spoken to sometimes it's conscious and they do consciously build that resilience as mm. you were talking about and other times maybe it's more subconscious but it seems to be a trend of, of the, the, the successful entrepreneurs uh, that I've spoken to in that they, they kind of invite in a little more uh, struggle than they might have to. And mm. it's to condition themselves for the road ahead, you yeah. know, to, 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 to make them fit for purpose for the inevitable struggles that are coming. They have a general attitude of, let me do it the hard way anyways. If, right. I, if I choose the hard way, if I welcome the struggle, then when it comes, it's it's normal. It's totally. it's second nature. Whereas, of course, another segment of the population will uh, will try to avoid uh, discomfort and go toward mm-hmm. comfort. And of course, you know, maybe that has some uh, deleterious effects on their entrepreneurial career down the road. Mm-hmm. But let's get into a bit the the crazy stuff that you do, the ultra marathons <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Where where is that coming from, and what, what what's your interest in doing those things? Yeah. So. Uh Athletics has been part of my life since I can remember. I uh, remember playing catch with mom and dad in my backyard, um, loving baseball growing up. And um, I learned early that it's really important to uh, kind of harness your mind. When you're pitching, uh, you get a kind of an instant result. Either you throw it and it's a ball and the hitter earns a small advantage or you're throwing strikes, uh, which help you get the batter out and helps your team get back up to the plate where you win the game. Um, and, uh, that lesson early taught me the importance kind of uh, sharpening the mental axe, how related your, your mind and body really are. And so as I've uh, gotten a little bit older here, no longer playing Little League Baseball, but I, uh, I still like to challenge myself, certainly. And I, more than ever, I'm seeing the, the relation between mind, body, and spirit. And I find when I'm, uh, I'm training for something, uh, particularly if it's a challenge that kind of gives me the shiver, something that's really going to be uh, hard, mm-hmm. uh, the harder the better, because I think you really... Uh, we're all capable of much more uh, than we, we may think possible. Mm-hmm. And it's only when you really set that high bar for yourself do you give yourself uh, the ability to really persevere through those the challenges to, to hit your standard. And so, yeah, it, really, it motivates me to set a big goal. It motivates me to work together with my colleagues to condition ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe in a, uh, a really uh, process-oriented development. You've got to set that big goal, and then you've got to really work at it day after day after day. Um, every Wednesday... Uh, right here, 3 p.m., we're doing our, uh, our weekly triathlon where as a, as a team, uh, we're having a, a competition against ourselves where we do the longest plank we can. We're doing the longest wall sit we can. Everybody in the office? Everybody in the office, doing the, the most push-ups we can. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's hard. We're all sweating. We're all out of breath by the end, uh, you know, all red-faced. But it's a great way to, to, you know, you're fighting together in those trenches, pushing yourself to, to your edge, yeah. and we're all getting stronger uh, mentally and physically as a result of that. Yeah. The, uh, that's that's great. I mean, I love to hear that kind of uh, culture. You know, a culture that values getting the blood pumping, getting the lungs blowing out, getting some sweat going. You know, because I think that has a lot of downstream effects, not just in totally. a, you know a long term practice of improving oneself, but in coming back to your computer with a fresh mind, and huge with, focus know, and energy and, and stuff yeah, like that. Totally. Um, but you, one of the things about these, you know, because I read you've done some ultra marathons, right? Which mm-hmm. is like a hundred k. 200k uh-huh. stuff like that am i is that yeah, correct uh that's right i, I love running <laughs> so i guess my question is a lot of times in entrepreneurship making 
committing to things is an enormous aspect of it, mm. right? So saying that you're going to do something and actually doing it. Totally. And again, just like we were talking a second ago about conditioning resilience, is is part of you know making these commitments to run a 100-kilometer race or a 200-kilometer race in the desert or other wacky stuff I think I read uh-huh. that you've done – is part of that, and maybe it just comes naturally to you, but I, I'm wondering, you know, is committing to enormous uh, challenges like that also kind of condition you, not just for the hardship of the mm. entrepreneurial experience, but for the ability to make a commitment to, mm. a, to a big task, to say, this is the goal, and I'm committing fully to it? Yeah, uh, most definitely. So uh, this little bit of context here, I uh, always liked running growing up as a pitcher. You have to do a lot of conditioning. And my coaches and teammates just thought it was weird. They're like, wow, you're, uh, you like this too much, man. This is supposed to be punishment. Why do you enjoy it? And so I always have liked it. Uh, some of my fondest memories from boyhood, running with my uh, dad, my sister, my, uh, my brother and mom out on forested trails outside Seattle. Um, so I've always enjoyed it. But uh, my senior year of high school, I uh, do competitive running for the first time. And I, I just improved a lot. I like I realized, hey, when you train, you can get better. And that was really exciting to me. I mean, it sounds so obvious as I say it out loud here. It sounds almost foolishly simple, but it was it was exciting as I was improving. Yeah. And I realized, look, with this sort of effort with running, I bet I can get better at anything if I just put you know put my mind to it. And so as I uh, became a uh, an entrepreneur during college, started working on a project, I looked at them kind of in parallel. I'm gonna get my uh, I want to get my energy reserves up. I want to become more resilient. I want to get stronger. I want to get fit because I think in some ways the entrepreneurial lifestyle takes away some of your uh, – it can take away your health. I know mm-hmm. a lot of older guys that say, Greg, I wish I had taken better care of myself, less coffee, more Hear sleep. All the time. All, all the time. time. And yeah. I, that's one thing where I, initially I said, look, I'm, I'm 23. I, that's you know, Thank you for the advice, but you're an old man. I'm, I'm a young guy. I'm invincible. <laughs> and uh, a few years later I, I realized uh, there's, there's a lot of wisdom in those words. Mm-hmm. And so trying to take better care of myself, running uh, – is one way you do so. You keep your cardiovascular system strong. You keep your mind, body, and spirit uh, intertwined and fighting for it. Yeah. And this this perfect segue into your morning routine. I'm a big morning routine, morning ritual sort of buff. You know? Nice. And, and I've experimented with many over the years, and I hang mm. out in a certain ritual for six months or so, and then I change it up and see how I feel. And what I'm, and I ask this question to, to all my guests, and uh, – I notice that there are a growing number of people are establishing some sort of morning ritual, not just waiting for the alarm clock to go off and in a tizzy starting the day and, you know, having it kind of be a tornado rather than a very mindful, a very intentional hmm. time of day and then setting up a, a productive, uh, healthy, happy sort of day. So. Why don't you share with me? I know you did it in the questionnaire that you sent me, but why don't you share yep. with us the uh, the routine that you're currently uh, that you currently use? Yeah, totally. So uh, a little bit of backstory: I used to be the guy waking up in a tizzy and running off to the first <laughs> thing. So I know from uh, from firsthand experience how uh, unsatisfying it is when it it's like lunchtime and you just you know I haven't done anything except roll around in my inbox for a couple right. hours. And uh, so I knew a change was needed. And uh, in 2015, started experimenting with a uh, a, a few. A few things, and I realized for me, um, I wanted to be able to have to be able to claim some small victories each morning, and that way, no matter what direction the day went, you already feel like you're on to something. And yeah. so, uh, for one, it's it's waking up uh, early. Um, I, I know that I'm going to be most successful when I have uh, at least three hours before my first engagements, mm-hmm. where I can really uh, put a couple sm- small victories on the board. And what's uh, early for you? Uh, uh, 
as early as maybe 4.30 um, and as, as late as 6.30. Yeah. So somewhere in that sweet spot. Um, uh, and you know, the first thing I want to do is I want to uh, make sure my bed is uh, it, my bed is made, uh, make sure that my clothes aren't you know disheveled about, which is right. uh, my old typical self. So trying to uh, level up in that way. Yeah. Uh, and then for me, it's actually getting out um, after slugging some water, some stretching, and then going out for a run. And I, uh, I love learning about history. I love learning about science. Uh, and I don't have enough time for either of those things uh, generally. And so what I've done is I've actually combined my running with, uh, with that learning. And so I'm able to uh, learn about – right now I'm learning about Ulysses S. Grant, the uh, American uh, Civil War commander and mm-hmm. American president uh, and just remarkably humble uh, leader from kind of like the backwoods without um, – without a lot of the typical opportunities, rose to, to great prominence. A real underdog and huge inspiration from this guy. And so um, I'm learning about that, I'm learning about you know particle physics, another uh, kind of geeky hobby I have uh, while I'm running. And I'll finish that 30-minute, 45-minute, 90-minute, two-hour run, get back, um, and then I have a little roller. And I find that actually stretching and kind of decompressing after that run is super fruitful. And so I'll roll, roll it out, stretch it out, and then take a uh, take a shower. Uh, I'll spoil myself in kind of January and February with warm showers. My apartment's <laughs> freezing, but uh, uh, once the sun comes back out, we'll uh, we'll get back on that one. Yeah. And then from there, it's uh, good nutrition. So maybe a uh, a banana um, or an omelet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of, uh, of veggies, so throw in some broccoli, some uh, some kale uh, in that guy, along with some uh, uh, some cheese as well. Get some protein going. Uh, I'm trying to cut back on my coffee, so try to do tea and water mm-hmm. to uh, get some fluids going, and then I'll uh, I'll dive in with a uh, uh, by reading you know meditations or the gospel, something to kind of uh, uh, ground myself for the day before doing some uh, quiet reflection, noting the daily intention, mm-hmm. reviewing my uh, my work plan. I try to uh, I know it's gonna be a successful day if I've defined what I need to do for the day the night before, then I can kind of quickly review that, think of any preparation or if any moving pieces need to be. Uh, put into place before I head into the office, then commute in either with a uh, an audiobook, a call to the family, um, or you know, uh, if it's a particularly beautiful day, maybe admire the sunshine or admire the leaves as they fall yeah. as I go on. So. That's awesome. I love that. And how long is this entire process usually? I uh, so you it, said you mentioned two or three hours before your first engagement. That's so right. I guess it's about that long. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I'll try to make it a little bit longer depending on where I'm at my training cycle. So I've got a race on March 18, and so I'm gonna, the morning routine will become longer and longer right. as I get closer because the run will fill up get a lion's share of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes wonder, you know, with any changes that we notice, any trends we, we see emerging, is it us that's changing and thus we surround ourselves and with people and probe people for affirmation of the things we're doing, or is there actual trends occurring? And uh-huh. this is one of them because I, perhaps like you, used to be wake up late, tizzy, you know, uh-huh. messy. I, I would have never guessed in a million years I'd, I'd be a morning person. And now I wake up, you know, not as, as early as 4.30, usually around 5.30. And uh, I love it. You know, I love those quiet hours in the morning. My routine is eerily similar to the one that you just described. Uh-huh. You know, some sort of fitness. Usually there's some meditation in there. Maybe there's a little bit of reading. There's some form of exercise and stretching. Uh, there's nutritious food. And then you can plan your day and then push forward. And you're not already whipped up in a, you know, a cortisol stressful sort of mood. You're, you're starting on your own terms. And the more and more people I speak to about this, the more people seem to be doing it. Mm. And, and 
especially the exercise component, not for burning calories, not for looking sexier, but for getting the mind right for the right. day ahead, you know, because that running or that exercise or the boxing or the yoga done in the morning, I mean, you're able to approach the day with a calm, with a focus right. that, that seems much harder to come by if you don't have something like that in place. Most definitely. So I don't know if it's a general trend or if I'm just trying to find people like me or we're trying to find people like each other, yeah. but... Uh, it seems like more and more people are catching on, I guess, to the secret of the, the morning routine. Totally. A, uh, um, a blogger and writer that I've been following, uh, James Clear, uh, jamesclear.com, he has a lot on habit formation, and he studies a lot of the, the great minds, people that have uh, led in business or in sport or politics or uh, the arts. And mm-hmm. um, one of his observations is that everyone has um, a different set of preferences and habits and, and rituals. But most of these great people have those habits and preferences and rituals. Yeah. And that was one thing where it forced me to be a little bit more introspective because I felt like a piece <clears throat> of driftwood on a lot of days mm-hmm. where I'm letting my, my email inbox dictate where I'm spending my time. And you just don't have that luxury when you have several impact areas, when you're under you know, uh, the stresses of trying to lead and, and grow a, uh, an organization. You really you got to level up. And for me, it's, it's been a big level up. And so I figure a lot of people are compelled by necessity. You, you go to bed with cortisol, you wake up feeling, you know, your, your hair in every direction, yeah. your bed's a it's mess. It's not a beautiful day. It's a, oh, shit. Like, it's, totally. you know, there's you're a dreading, big... Yeah, you're dreading exactly. You're dreading it, exactly. What a bummer that is because yeah. the one thing we can always control is our, um, our attitude. Mm-hmm. We can always control our reaction to the events in our life. And I think a morning routine is, is beautiful for the uh, serenity and the, the peace of mind it can give you. Yeah. So. Now, ha- having said all that about morning routines, what you just said about this guy who studied kind of uh, the routines or rituals of a number of notable people reminds me, I think it was on Brain Pickings. I don't know if you're mm. familiar with that blog. I am, yeah. Um, but she, it was some sort of similar analysis mm. of great writers, poets, business people, whatever, and their routines. And I read it, and I was kind of happy to see that there's no uh, – one side there's there's no absolute uh, equation you mm. know for the success of a day for setting up your day correctly you know like someone like you know maybe it was Oscar Wilde or I can't remember who it was they might wake up at 4 p.m. Yeah. they might have some coca leaves and they you know they chew yeah. on some coca leaves and drink 10 cups of coffee have a, a shot of bourbon start writing yeah. go, go the day out has begun. Go, yeah <laughs> go out for cigars you know and 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 they were able to make that uh they were able to have that empower them to do whatever it was they were trying to achieve. Mm. So it is sometimes nice to know because we, I, I feel it's easy to get caught up in the necessity of routine and ritual. It, uh, I think it's nice sometimes to have that flexibility and realize it doesn't have to come in any particular package. Mm. Uh, whatever it is, it, it can still support you. You just It's kind of your experiment and obligation to figure out totally. what is best for you. Absolutely. Um, you touched on several times in our in our discussion today your family. You said you might ring up your folks on your mm-hmm. morning run or whatever. Um, and this is you also mentioned on the questionnaire that uh, you sent in before the show. And I think you said if it, I don't, I'm not sure if it was an advice of some kind, but you said spend more time with or stay in closer contact mm-hmm. with friends totally. and family. Why? Yeah, it. Uh, I think your family is uh, the reason why each of us have so many of the opportunities. That, uh, that we do is because we had uh, parents or siblings or an aunt or uncle or grandparents that invested a lot into our early development and invested a lot into 
the uh, the trials and tribulations of our teenage years as we're trying to figure out who we are and what we want to do. And I uh, yeah, I have a particularly uh, uh, supportive and encouraging set of parents that um, from the get-go have encouraged my, uh, my various crazy experiments and habits and uh, preferences. Um, even when I was kind of going against the grain, I uh, could never put much uh, effort into my studies. Um, so I had teachers that were ringing my parents saying, look, your son, we're really worried about him. We're not so sure he's going the right direction. Uh, we need you to come down here to the school. And you know, this was like a recurring thing. So my, my right. parents were like, oh, great, here we go again. But uh, at the same time, they knew that baseball and football and basketball and eventually uh, debate were the things that I really cared about. And so they were really encouraging of that, look, you're not so motivated by the book you're told you have to read or by that mathematics textbook, but you enjoy reading about uh, physics in your spare time or you enjoy going and playing baseball with your friends. And uh, they, they really gave me a lot of rope to figure out what I was all about, what my, my real preferences were. And I think that's been uh, super valuable because as a result of that, uh, I feel like I can uh, take bigger risks perhaps than, uh, than others because there's uh, the fear of failure is uh, it, f- failure is only a temporary setback. And especially when you have a very loving family that is there to take care of you no matter the setback, no matter the challenge, yeah. it gives you a lot of confidence to go take that, uh, that big swing. Yeah. And so for that reason, you feel you owe it to them. And of course, you are interested in keeping in touch. You like speaking totally. with them and, and for those reasons. Um, but I want to ask you, and I don't, I don't know if you'll be able to, you know, comment on this, but a lot of people don't have that, right? They mm. don't have the supportive family. They, mm. they blaze their own trail. Maybe they did what they did in spite of their family. Sure. W- what kind of advice can you give? Or, you know, what, what's your thinking on people that are coming from that scenario rather than the very fortunate one in terms of fam- familial support that you, were, that you had access to or that you came from? Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, I think all of us have certain relations either in our, um, our immediate or extended family where we wish that relationship were a little, were a little better. Yeah. And um, I think one exercise I've done in, in my own instance is try to put myself in, in their shoes sometimes where I just try to figure out, hey, uh, my parents had a very different upbringing than my own. My, uh, uh, both grew up in Mississippi, which is one of the poorest states in the U.S. Uh, my dad grew up in the Mississippi Delta, the kind of floodplain of uh, uh, off the the big river there and very very poor rural area of the state uh and so he was selling books door to door waiting tables um really gutting it for every opportunity and so uh, when he was my age i think he you know 27 i think he's a, a beer vendor for seattle seahawks football games and so uh you know he couldn't have envisioned at 27 leaving a technology startup i mean that's just that's otherworldly and then my grandfather his father was working in a rock quarry, was fighting as a Marine in the South Pacific. And yeah. so I feel like uh, in some respects we owe it to the previous generation because we're, we're standing on their shoulders as we have uh, new opportunities. Uh, I realize not everyone has um, as deep of a bond uh, therein, but I think trying to uh, really trying to find that empathy, trying to better understand someone and trying to appreciate maybe the virtues or uh, the, uh, the eccentricities that that person brings even if it's not the way that we would live our life, sure. try to reduce maybe the judgment that we bring and more of the, uh, the, the understanding, even if it's a, a big gulf, trying to shorten that a little bit. Yeah. That'd be my, uh, my feeling because life is so short and you know, tomorrow's never guaranteed either sure. for them or for us. Yeah, I think that's great advice and can be applied to everyone really, not just family, friends, but you know, everyone that you come into contact with. Um, I know you're tight on time and I don't want to keep you too long, so 
I've got a few questions left. I'm just going to hit them, hit you Boom. with them, and then uh, we'll see where we're at. So, tell me about a time that you triumphed over your own self-doubt, where you were incredibly nervous. Mm. You maybe didn't you had high, you know, sincere doubts that you maybe couldn't do something, but mm. you you went ahead, you did it, and you triumphed. Yeah, I uh, uh, summer of 2014. I was uh, excuse me, summer of 2013. I'm extremely excited about an upcoming race I have through the uh, Sahara Desert. Um, uh, unfortunately, I, I suffer a pretty bad motorcycle accident. I'm, I'm hit by a sideswipe by a drunk driver and go down on the pavement. Um, foolishly, wasn't wearing protective gear. And so, uh, luckily, I had a helmet, but didn't have uh, the right pants or, uh, or upper body gear. And so, roll around on the pavement. My sh- elbows and knees are completely uh, cut up. And so, disappointing on a ton of levels. I, I luckily get some good medical treatment. Uh, I'm stabilized, but the doctor says, Hey, look, you know, I know you like to run, but that's just, that's not a good idea. You're going to be really fragile for several months and your skin's got to heal up. And then thereafter your bones may have taken a big beating rolling on pavement at 40 miles an hour. Um, sorry, but your, your running career is, it's gotta be over. You gotta, uh, it's no sense going forward with that and, and jeopardizing yourself. I remember hearing that advice and being just like really, uh, kind of dumbfounded and struck with, wow, like, I'm already hobbling right now, and he's saying, like, I'm not going to be able to recover to do the thing that I really love to do. Um, that said, I'm, I'm a stubborn guy, and so I set the goal, look, I'm, uh, you know, I know this doctor's well-meaning, and he's a professional, but, like, I'll be damned. I'm going to go make this happen. I had to scratch that first race, of course, because I was still bandaged up, but I said, I'm going to get back out, going to go do a, a big run, and um, I had a ton of self-doubt on the bad days where, like, you know, I'm out there trying to do a speed, my first speed walk since my accident, and then my knee starts aching or, you know, literally like the cut reopens and it's just like, ah, it's excruciating. Yeah. Uh, over time though, I, I make a little bit of progress, a little bit of progress, a little bit of progress enough where, uh, I feel like I can make this happen. And I get out there. Uh, the, the race I pick is out in the Gobi desert in uh, Northwest China and, uh, get to the start line. Nice easy race to get you back into things, right? Getting back in. <laughs> it goes back. You got to set that big goal and then yeah. and work toward it. Uh, midway through the race, I'm, I'm actually feeling great. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm surprising myself, surprising, um, I think, others as well. Um, and at that moment, though, I, I tw- end up twisting my knee on a, on a rock in a river and uh, ex- excruciating. One of the worst, way more painful than the motorcycle thing, which I was in so much shock, I didn't feel it. Uh, whereas this was just sheer agony. And uh, I've got another 120, 125 kilometers to go at this point. Uh, yeah. But I've spent so much time thinking about how I'm going to push through whatever obstacle, and I couldn't. My my mind just wouldn't let my body give out, and so the next 125 kilometers are just a uh, uh, a total agonizing blur as I hobble one foot in front of another, kind of semi pigeon toed, wrapped up on uh, painkillers to get to that finish line. So wow, 120k on a on a busted knee, basically. Hey, yeah, sprain sprain my right knee, and then the left one got all flared up too because I was trying to go pigeon-toed because it hurt less. Wow. I don't think we'll top that one on the show anytime soon. Um, You touched on this briefly a second ago, but favorite biographies or some of the top biographies you've read throughout your life that you just derived inspiration from or found meaningful in whatever way? Totally. Um, One that I read uh, as a young guy was uh, The Last Romantic. It's a book about uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the American president, Mm -hmm. and he was a guy that had uh, debilitating asthma as uh, as a child and just put himself on kind of a, a self-improvement plan to push past that and became a, uh, you know, a, a great boxer, became a war hero, uh, 
was just an incredible public servant in the States. And I always found um, that to be a really inspiring tale. Um, on the business level, um, the everything store about Jeff Bezos and Amazon has been a, a book that's uh, really, you know, given me many smiles as I think about their path as a Seattleite, particularly. Right. Um, the uh, Onward, the Howard Schultz and Starbucks story, uh, is totally incredible. How they've built an amazing culture around retail coffee, and you know, a globally iconic brand now as well. Yeah. Um, those are those are three in particular that, that stick out to me. Yeah. Is uh, just yeah, incredible uh, inspiration. Been recommended the Everything Store often, and I've actually I purchased it, but I haven't gotten to it yet, so hey. I have to get to it soon. Um, you've likely given several pitches. We discussed this a little bit before, but what's a one piece of advice that mm. you can give to, you know, other entrepreneurs that will be going through the same thing to help them perform at their best? Hey. One piece. One piece. I think it's a, uh, know your audience, um, cut down and I'm gonna give you more than one piece. Sorry, but yeah, know your audience, um, cut down on a lot of the, uh, uh, the buzzwords, try to, try to pitch it straight and then make better reality. If you have great numbers that you can point to, it's gonna speak volumes much more so than like the latest hot buzzword. Right, so stay away from pivot and things of that nature. Pivot or disrupt right. or game change. Yeah. Gotcha. Which I'm guilty of, but I'm trying to do less of it myself. We all are to yeah. some degree, of course. Um, you have your hands in a lot of pies. You know, I, Like I said, I consulted some of your work before the, the show today. Um, you seem to take a lot on. One of the huge challenges of being an entrepreneur, in fact, any productive individual in general, is prioritizing work totally. and, and determining where you're going to place your focus for how long mm. and to what end. Mm. How do you do that effectively? Yeah, I try to uh, make sure that each action I'm taking is for a, a broader purpose. And so uh, I do a lot of annual planning, um, making sure that I'm kind of my life is broadly aligned with my values, what I'm trying to accomplish. I uh, do a lot of quarterly planning both with my teammates here along with on a personal level. And then really the, uh, uh, the, the glue that binds it together is a, a weekly review where I'm measuring progress. And sometimes I'll say, I'll realize from a review, wow, I've been saying that hiring is a priority, but less than 5% of my professional time is going to hiring right now. Like there's clearly a discrepancy. I need to reconcile that. Mm -hmm. And so the review is a great way to make sure that you're on track. Yeah. And how do you prioritize the task? Like how do you determine which ones are the highest impact? If, if it's not immediately clear yep. when you're starting out. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, the uh, former Allied commander during uh, World War II and American president, uh, uh, basically created a, a little box, call it the Eisenhower box, where you have some tasks which are urgent, some are important, some that only you can do, and some that a, uh, a colleague or subordinate is better equipped to do. Mm -hmm. And so um, I try to have that as a mental model as I think through work that needs to happen. And I find that uh, more often than not, something can be delegable to someone that's actually better for the work than you. And frequently the things that we say are urgent, um, uh, sometimes that's an artificial construct on the timing that we put on ourselves. I think it's, uh, it's critically important that you start with the, the, uh, the truly important, those of paramount value, where you're either going to win or lose the battle. Make sure that you're putting enough resources to deal with these. And then design smart stop gaps to deal with the occasional urgent but not important things that come about. Right. Um, what throughout your life has held you back and what do you think holds others back from going for it? Mm. Wow, interesting. Um, I think the self-doubt piece that we've hit on is number one. Mm -hmm. Stephen Pressfield, one of my favorite authors, calls it resistance. Mm -hmm. And 
I, uh, I've gotten much better in the last uh, two, three years about identifying sources of resistance. Literally a page in this notebook in front of me is where I log resistance, where mm-hmm. it's like, hey, I felt resistance about this. I then try to analyze why. And I think on a meta level, everyone would benefit from analyzing their sources of resistance. What tasks or series of actions make you kind of cringe as you even think about doing it? Mm-hmm. And then kind of unpack that. Why does that make you uncomfortable? And try to design a series of habits around that where you reward yourself. So for me, doing a lot of administrative work used to just make me cringe. I was terrible at it. I was one of the worst CEOs at admin that you knew. But in the last couple of years, really investing time and effort to reward myself after doing some administration, literally going watching a mindless TV show or binging on ESPN.com, right. reading about my Seahawks after I do some admin to reward yourself. Right, and to, to change the How you think about it. to it. Because right? now I'm excited. It's like, oh, I'm doing admin. Right. That means i got to watch some Seahawks highlights yeah, at the end yeah, of the yeah. day. So. Cool. All right, moving forward. Um, this is a, I'm stealing this from Peter Thiel. Um, I've never asked this to a guest before. Hey. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Fascinating. Um, uh, I read Zero to One, and that's a great one. Um, mm-hmm. I wish I had a more interesting or compelling one. I think from our work at Chase Future, very few people think that you can design a, uh, a mentorship uh, platform that delivers better uh, advice and better service that people are willing to pay for. And that's, uh, I think if we validate that, we're sitting on a, uh, a billion-dollar impact-generating company. Mm-hmm. And if we're wrong, then everyone said, I told you so all along. Okay. So. And speaking about a potentially billion-dollar opportunity or company, what excites you most about the future? And as an alternative to that, what scares you the most? And this can be anything from AI takes over to, Uh you know, Chase Future is the next Amazon or anything in between. Yeah, uh, I'm really excited about the work we're doing here. I'm proud of the the efforts we put in day in, day out, the results we're making for our clients. All that really excites me, Um, particularly because I think when you just get started – it's a little bit like puppy love. You're doing a project because hopefully you have some inherent interest in parts of it. Uh, but it's really exciting as you take down those first milestones, the opportunities that open and the chance for impact you have. That really excites me. The things that, uh, uh, that scare me is that uh, we're not going fast enough. We're not doing quite enough to open up the great opportunity for mentorship to as many students. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's both on a, uh, a self-interested competitive level. That gives oxygen to potential competitors potential entrance, um, and also just on a, uh, a regret maximization framework, I want to make sure that we're helping as many students as we possibly can, mm-hmm. so we got to go fast. Yeah. That's what keeps me up at night. Nice. Um, last two sets of questions. These next three are all advice-driven, mm-hmm. so three for each. Three pieces of advice to your 20-year-old self. Hey, I you would call them up. If I could call them up, I would uh, tell them, one, to take, uh, take more risks. Particu- I was in university at age 20. Take more risks because the cost of failure is so exceedingly low at age 20. Mm-hmm. No matter what happens, you have classes and uh, things you can like uh, fall back to. Uh, take more risks then. I'm sure it, uh, in 10 years I'll tell my, my current self I should have been taking more risks as well. Okay. Um, second, I would say uh, spend more time developing really meaningful relationships, both with, uh, uh, with friends and with family. Mm-hmm. Um, keep, keep investing in those things. And then third, uh, go learn more. And so like take, take on skills that you are... Uh, you'd know nothing about. You know, I would have spent more time learning about uh, web development and coding. I would have spent more time building, you know, some Mandarin skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, some more time traveling and seeing the world. So. We touched on this already a bit, but three pieces of advice to aspiring entrepreneurs. Awesome. Um, 
Number one, I think you've got to clarify your your why. You need a clear purpose. So before you dive in, because it seems like the cool thing to do, figure out why, because it's it's harder than it looks initially. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to be really clear to yourself, or else you'll you'll surrender in the first setbacks. Um, second, start building your uh, your resilience and your your thick skin now. Intentionally step up on in your current work or in your current studies in your current physical fitness, uh, so that you're experiencing more active failures. That's the best conditioning for uh, for the real thing. Mm-hmm. And then third, um, I think have fun. Uh, so often we stress ourselves out and we're not able to really enjoy the journey. I know no matter what happens from here at Chase Future, I'm really excited that we've had a great time working together. And I think we're going to fight and win a lot of great battles from here. But mm-hmm. no matter what happens, I'm, I'm proud of the the, uh, the foundation that we've laid and excited about what we're up to now. Yeah. Beautiful. These are great answers. Um, three things people can do to kick more ass in life. This is from morning routines to drink less coffee, more coffee, whatever. Three things. Totally. Number one, uh, build better organization into your life. So often we sweat the small stuff because the small stuff is just taking up too much brain ram. Uh, for me, uh, a game-changing haha, decision I made was to get onto Evernote uh, where I manage my life now. And so both the Chase Future work, personal projects, health stuff, habits, I track all of it there. Mm-hmm. Um, so get more organized, number one. Um, number two, um, get into some kind of physical fitness. Um, not all of us have uh, real physical gifts per se, but we're all athletes. We're all designed to uh, have uh, be more actively engaged with our bodies. So go pick out something easy, ideally something that where you're going to have to spend any money and you're not spending so much time, but find something that makes you smile. Um, and third, uh, be more intentional about learning. You know what, what skill gap do you have? What deficiency do you have? Or what just brings you lots of joy? And it can be something as useless as my personal uh, passion for learning about the U.S. Civil War. Uh, just a subject I'm really deeply interested in. It will make me no extra money in my life. It will bring me no fame or fortune, but I just really like it. So yeah. I, I keep doing it. Cool. These are rapid-fire questions, word association. Don't think, just answer, okay? Pain. Uh, endurance. Shanghai. Awesome. Education. Opportunity. Failure. More of it. Entrepreneurship. Uh, innovation. Money. Uh, fortune. Happiness. Uh, prosperity. Beautiful. And that's us done. Hey. Easy, e- easy as that. So, Greg, thank you very much for uh, joining me on the show today. I know we went a bit over. I hope, uh, I hope you don't mind that. Where can people uh, get a hold of Chase Future, learn more about the company, get in touch with you, any information you want to put out there? Yeah, uh, connect with us online at chasefuture.com, and let's connect. Uh, my website is gregnance.org. I love it when people say hello. Greg at chasefuture.com is my email. Drop me a line say hi. And you guys are all over Western social media and right. Chinese social media. Twitter, Facebook, Weixin, LinkedIn, Weixin, Weibo. That's right. Cool. All right, Greg, thank you very much for joining me on the show. My pleasure. Everyone, we'll see you next time. Hey, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Tech in Shanghai podcast. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Tech in Shanghai for everything tech from Shanghai and China. See you next time.